I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, dears. Welcome to our interview special with Spike the Duke Edney. In case that name is not familiar to you, Spike has been a key collaborator with Queen ever since he started playing keyboards and backing guitars with them on the Works Tour back in 1984. He was right there on stage with them at Live Aid, Wembley 86 and the Tribute Concert. He was integral to the We Will Rock You musical. He was in the Brian May Band, Roger Band's The Cross, and of course in Queen Plus Paul Rogers and Adam Lambert. He's also worked with the likes of Duran Duran, the Boomtown Rats, and the Rolling Stones, as well as running his own group, Spike's All-Star Band, the SAS Band. Now, the internet was not particularly kind to us during this interview, so I'm afraid Spike Sound does occasionally drop out, but he was on brilliant form, and we had a really lovely, wonderful time with him. I'm very excited to share it with you. Do enjoy. Hello and welcome to a very special Queen Pod. I'm here with uh, Simon Lupton, producer Sam and Suze Kempner to talk to the one, the only, the mighty Spike the Duke, Edney! Hello Hello. Spike! (laughs) Very happy to have you here on Queen Pod. We're thrilled uh, that you've given up your time to chat to us. Um, I thought I would start with, how are you getting on with your autobiography please? Because I feel like you've got many stories to tell, and I want to read them all. <laughs> yeah, do you know, um, it's not a labour of love. I'm actually really enjoying uh, doing it, but it's a never-ending, deep mine of memories. And um, every time I sort of dig into something and start to put the pieces together, and I look at dates, and I look at things like... Um, tour itineraries and all that stuff something springs to mind and the story and then one story opens up another avenue of other stories and then i have to go and take care of all those and it's a real case of i want to um catalog as much as i can remember um so that uh, so that it's done and then kind of select the best of it, or let um, an editor select the best of it uh, for the book. I've got way too much for a book. Um, <laughs> and uh, But I've also, I got COVID uh, at Christmas. Oh, and, no, I'm sorry, mate. Well, you know, I mean, so did, so did millions of others. Um, but I noticed that my sort of concentration and energy level was greatly affected by that. And whereas I had a sort of 
plan to have it all done by about this time. In fact, I just seized up because every time I sat down and started to write, I found myself, uh, it was lackluster. It had no spirit, no vibe to it. Yeah. And I thought, I'm not ready to do this now uh, anymore at the moment. I need to sort of get my mojo back, as we say. Um, and it's my thought that I've got some, I've got a month coming up now before uh, the Queen tour kicks off. Um, and uh, I'm in London at the moment and I'm going back to America in a couple of days and I've kind of set my sights on, uh, I'm going to sort of uh, buckle down and try and try and finish. But I'm in a real juicy period right now. Um, I, I stopped just as I was talking about the uh, 1986 tour. So when I was digging out all those oh, memories. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So, um, so that's, it's, it's a journey, actually. And, and it's one I've really enjoyed. Um, and, but it's much more detailed. And I'm remembering much more than I would have expected to. So whether it's true or that's accurate, amazing. I'll be making it all up. I don't know. <laughs> It's not like you wrote any of it down at the time, right? But lots of photographs, though. Um, ah. And, um, of course, uh, diaries with dates and gigs in them. Um, yeah. I get a rough picture of how things uh, hang together, you know. And uh, although I was a bit wary at first of, uh, of making it uh, linear, you know, sort of month follows month, I'm not doing that sure. exactly, but tour follows tour. And mm, so... Right. You know, there's no point in jumping around and starting with the Freddie Mercury tributes and then ending with the works tour when, in fact, it runs the other way around, you know, sure. that section. Yeah, of course. And there's a progression that comes from that. Yeah, yeah. A natural progression and a natural meeting of people. And uh, friendships are made and friendships are lost and uh, remarkable things happen and ridiculous things happen. And that's what I'm looking for. Yeah. I don't want to put you on the spot, but just out of curiosity... Can you share any of these little uh, stories that cropped up for you lately where you've been really entertained by what's popped into your head? I don't want to give any jewels away because, uh, but um, there's the, well, it's quite famous story now of um, my sort of introduction to Queen because I wasn't a Queen fan by any stretch of the imagination. I admired them. And I could tell that they were, because I didn't come onto the scene until 84, so mm. that was the works. Yeah. And since sort of Killer Queen all the way through, I'd like their records, but I, I'd never been to see them. And, I, and I, I was a Steely Dan fan, and I like Earth, Wind and Fire. Right. Steely Dan. Right. So my heart, my musical heart, was very much across the Atlantic. And soul and... Yeah, soul, really. I mean, um, yeah. uh, through the 60s, I was a Beatles fan and Stones and all that stuff. Um, but by the, by the late 60s, early 70s, I really kind of moved to, my taste had moved to America and um and the 70s in the UK were all right by me I mean I liked a bit of Bowie and I liked a bit of Mark Bowler and I liked a bit of Queen it was just like that you know um so when the offer came through are you interested in doing something with Queen I went yeah okay it was no kind of big deal for me um <laughs> except that I wanted to work and being a semi-unemployed musician it's always good to get off <laughs> so um I had to, um, I was called to go to uh, Pembridge Villas, which was where the Queen office was in those days. It was a Georgian townhouse. So I went across there and I just assumed that it would be like most other uh, auditions for professional musicians. You turn up and you're one of 200 people sat there waiting to uh, sure. get your five minutes. Now the problem was, I don't didn't know any Queen songs, had no clue. So <laughs> I thought, well, this is going to be a bit 
bloody short and a little bit like, <laughs> they want to play some Chuck Berry or something. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm have to say I was quite sort of apprehensive uh, walking to, up the road from the tube station to Pembridge Village and you knock on the door, it's quite imposing. And you go in there and there seemed to be a ground floor of secretaries behind desks and gold records all over the wall and a bit intimidating to be honest. And they said, oh, uh, you know, who I am, why I'm here. And they said, all right, upstairs. And I thought, okay. In my mind, it was upstairs was a studio with everybody sat there and the gear all set out and yeah. Yeah. But none of it. I go upstairs, it's more offices and there's an office there with a door open. And uh, so I sort of amble in quite confused. And um, this rather um, portly gentleman in a brightly coloured shirt came in and, uh, and he said, who are you? I said, uh, my name's Spike and I'm here for the audition. He said, oh, okay. Not impressed at all, Enough, showing nothing. <laughs> and he said, my name's Jerry. Of course, Jerry Stickles is the name. Wow. Well, you know who that is, right? Stickles will see to that. So I sit down and he says, right, um, have you got a passport? I said, yes. Mm. He said, have you got it with you? I said, yes. He said, give it to me. And he put it on a photocopier. And he said, uh, are you available to travel between the months of uh, August and, I don't know, September, November or something? I said, yes. He said, right. He said, okay, so next Monday, uh, you will have a ticket and you will fly to Munich and start mm. rehearsals. And I went, uh, this doesn't really work like this, you know, this is, <laughs> where are the other 200? Where are the, I thought, well, maybe the other 200 guys are going to be there and we're all going to. <laughs> I, said, uh, I said, this is quite strange. I said, um, what happens if I get out uh, next Monday, if I get out to Munich and they don't like me? And he said, then on Tuesday, you'll fly back. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> How did Monday go? <laughs> Pretty well. <laughs> The story is yet to be told, yeah. <laughs> wow. That was, that was the first introduction. Wow. We watch the shows, we watch the stars, our videos for our So I've got to ask, um, and, and I will let you guys ask a question, sorry, but this sort of follows on, which is, what is it for you that um, that you feel clicked with these guys in such a way that you've ended up working with them pretty much ever since then? It's a balance that you have to have when you're working with um, uh, a ready-made unit, uh, there are a lot of big bands around the world who take on extra players when they tour. I mean, the Stones do the same thing. And if you if you look around, as you know, you two have an extra guy, and Muse have an extra guy. It's it's a it's a common thing. And every one of those people that do that job, um, unless they're a mate for, who's been around since the school days, and so is included, um, if you're just hired and you come in cold, you have to listen, listen to what's going on. And keep your mouth shut until somebody asks you for your opinion, <laughs> um, because it's a very precarious thing for you to put your hand up and and jump in with an idea, um, especially when the bands uh, have 
very talented people in them and you've got four talented people in queen they've got more than enough musical ideas to sort out what they need to sort out they don't need right. to like the, an upstart like me coming in telling them what to do except sometimes they do sometimes there's um a musical impasse or a blockage or something and then you just sort of got to ease the log jam and say well what happens if instead of doing that we tried it this i tried to do this or tried to do that or something different and it's gauging when is the right time to do that. And sometimes I get it terribly wrong and they say, for sake, shut up. Uh, or other times they say, that's a terrible idea. Or sometimes they say, hmm, maybe we'll try that. You know, and so, and if, after a while, if they trust you and you get to feel the vibe of the band and, and the relationship between the, the four members, then you can gauge when it's a good time to suggest something and when it's a good time to go and have a cup of tea, keep out of it, you know? So, uh, yeah, yeah. I, and I'm, I'm, by the time I got to them, I was in my, so what was it, 84? How old was I? Oh, 20, 21. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I was in my mid thirties and I've been around the block a bit and, and I kind of had a bit, had that skill of knowing when, when it's best to shut up, you know? Hmm. Right, right. When they really don't want your opinion. <laughs> yeah, 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 of course. These four walls are closing in. obviously started in the sort of mid to late 60s on this career path what was your goal when you started out and would sort of teenage you be pretty chuffed with how things have turned out to meet girls obviously <laughs> sure that's why i switched from cricket to guitar um, <laughs> did it work <laughs> i don't know because i didn't do the cricket i was <laughs> 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 but um, because of the time, and I really count myself as being so lucky to have had my te being born in the in the fifties and having my teenage years in the sixties was such a cultural um, explosion and, and revolution for young people. The music, you know, the style, everything, and to witness uh, the changes from Cliff Richard and the Shadows through the Beatles. Yeah. To the mods, um, soul explosion of Tamla Motown. It was just one thing after another. It just, you know, it was, it just never ended, and it was fantastic. And I took that for granted. Uh, that that's how exciting music was and would always be. And that was a, a roller coaster that I wanted to be part of. Mm. Um, and it was, uh, I had to find. I started out playing with schoolboy mates and. And uh, we had a, a, a schoolboy band from the age of about 12 to 14. Mm. And in fact, you know, they're all still alive and, and we're in touch. And, and the three of them actually carried on, even though I sort of quit after a couple of years because I want, you know, I felt the uh, urge to, to do something else. I wanted to be in a band. Being in a schoolboy band, we only ever played at people's houses, friends' mm. houses. Your mum right. right. would let you play and you played to a couple of neighbours and that was about <laughs> as big as it got. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to be walk on stage with a band that had a PA system and a van and mm. 
and, uh, and people that had come in to see the band so properly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got that bug by the age of about 17 when I found three guys who were exactly my year at, in a different school, but who were very, very talented. I suddenly realised that you had to work if you wanted to be out there with the good people and you better improve. And it made me, mm-hmm. drove me to improve and become better. And until the day when they gave me a go um, and let me play with them. And then they offered, asked me to join them, which was, it's just like 1969. To me, that was it. I thought I'd climbed the highest peak possible. I was playing with the guys that I admired most. And then, um, then of course, you've got to think about, you know, you leave school. And then you think, well, I'm going to make a living. What do I do? So I spent a couple of years pretending I was doing a real job in the civil service. But really, I was just doing it to uh, appease what I thought I thought my parents expected of me. So leaving school and jumping straight into a van wearing flared trousers and smoking dope wasn't really a career path that I could <laughs> offer. <laughs> um, but joining the civil service seemed like a good sort of uh, sop. So I did the civil service for two years, but really four nights a week, I was jumping into a van with my loom pants on. Oh, um, and then, and then, and then it was just the desire to get better, you know. Mm-hmm. As, so you start out copying the Beatles and the Stones, and then you move on, and your musical ability grows, and then all of a sudden you're copying Chicago and you're copying Steely Dan, and there's a a whole new degree, and Jimi Hendrix and whatever. It's a whole new degree of musicianship that you're aspiring to. If somebody can play this and make it sound brilliant, what do I have to do to copy that? You know, and that's all you're doing, copying. Until then, you realise that that's not enough. You've got to write songs as well. So, um, so then you struggle to get your material together, and uh, and, uh, and it's a constant ladder of improvement. You know. wondering what shortcut you use with the band because obviously they don't tend to use manuscript paper much right I don't know if you do actually that much but I kind of suspect you will do for certain things probably like we will rock you the musical but what's the language how does it work in actual fact when you get together how how does that first bit of okay let's play hammer to fall and let's start playing that is that just a language that exists and you just yeah, start language doing it. Exists and and uh, by the time you walk into a room and start playing a hammer to fall, you've been speaking that language for many years. Mm. And so when um, somebody says, plays three notes or a chord progression, um, you need to be able to understand exactly what he's doing and play along with him. Now, there are mm. certain songs that's easy to do. So if you're playing a rock and roll classic, it's probably only three chords, four at the most. If you're playing Bohemian Rhapsody, you might want to <laughs> sit around at home first and do, <laughs> do a bit of homework. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so there, you know, there are degrees, and there are some bands where you, where you could literally walk on stage and join in, but there are some bands where the, where you must have done some preparation. Now. I don't read that great. I, I didn't have too much of a formal training because I hated what I was being trained to do. Um, and it didn't sound like anything that was fun to me. So mm. I ended up relying on my ears completely 
um, when I so I could hear something, pretty much play it or or understand what was going on, understand the, the musical language that was that was happening. And and rock and roll is three chords and a bit more if you're lucky. Um, mm-hmm. And so once you've sort of established that in your mind, you sort of, you know the, all the the main stuff is based on the blues, but you get the sort of European tradition that might come from uh, a more classical uh, uh, background, but um, once you start learning to speak the language or, or you hear it, it just gets easier, you know? So, right. um, and what I will do, if somebody is playing something to me for the first time, I'll listen to it, I'll watch what their fingers are doing. And I will just write down my own shorthand of what's going on, you know? Right. Uh, so I can listen to a track and go, okay, this is the verse, this is the intro. Um, I know that he's going from D to G to A to B minor. Um, and then, then a chorus comes, and what is that? That's C, F, and G. Uh, and then we have a verse, and then, then a solo, and then two more choruses, and and you there you are, you've plotted it out. So then all you have to do is how are you going to start it, and how are you going to finish it, and you, then you've got the plot. <laughs> wow. So do you just sort of keep all that information more or less in your head? No, not at all. Um, <laughs> um, I've got a big fat folder full of uh, scribbled penciled notes right. and with, with horrible bits of uh, Sharpie uh, scrawled all over the top where changes have occurred. Uh, and then, but nowadays, of course, we have iPads, so uh, it's all there. Oh, okay. um, but what you don't want to do is have somebody kick out your mains plug and your iPad resets in the middle of a gig so uh, <laughs> has that so happened I, yes it has <laughs> oh, no. oh in fact my very good friend jamie moses guitar player in my band tells this horrific story of uh, he got called to do a, to, to go in and do a gig with mike at the mechanics he had done it before but not for, not for a few years but because he'd done it before and he had all his stuff on the ipad and they, there was no time to rehearse um, and it's a festival and there was no sound check uh, he walked on stage and he gave his iPad to the roadie who plugged it in and it pressed the on button. It said, welcome to your new oh iPad. My God. Oh, my Into God. Into the language. And two, three, four. And <laughs> fortunately for him, wow. he God. did what all sensible people should do is never rely on technology. Yeah. Um, and he had a bag full of notes uh, in his kit bag up in the changing room. So he bluffed the first song out of, you know, sheer bravado and memory, whilst he, <laughs> he scurried up to the changing room or, uh, to bring down all these moth-eaten bits of paper. And that's oh, what we had, wow. moth-eaten bits of paper. And oh. so I never go on stage now without knowing that a somewhere... Hard copy, yeah. <laughs> there's a hard copy. If the worst really does happen. But I don't need that for Queen to tell you the truth. I mean, after 37 years, <laughs> the only notes I need uh, are for any changes we've made. Right. Or if there's something new been added for the sheer hell of it, you know, mm-hmm. or gotcha. we've shortened something or we've lengthened something, or and this happens quite a lot where we'll say, okay, we're going to do a fast version of Hammer to Fall, or we'll do the slow acoustic version of Hammer to Fall, uh, or we're going to cut out two choruses and medley straight into another song, you know. Uh, we do this to stop the boredom setting in, of course, but um, <laughs> but um, but but we all have to know where we're starting from before we can make the, the changes, you know. Yeah. You don't waste no time at all. Don't hear the bell, but you answer the call. Comes to
for the hammer to fall. Yes. So it's interesting because the boys seem quite disciplined. There's a, a lot made of how they always rehearse. Not like the example you just gave where there are some bands that don't even sound check. These guys always sound check. They always rehearse. They've always got a fairly... I mean, Live Aid was a very good example. Uh, I mean, I've seen you describe it as, well, we just put the biggest songs together into a set because that's what we thought we should do, which I thought was a brilliant point. <laughs> but... That seems so, so obvious. What is that work <laughs> ethic about? That, that that do you feel that sets them apart a little bit from other bands? They do have a a, a good work ethic, but most bands, most established bands, hate to rehearse, hmm. um, but they need to because when you haven't done it for six months, you get rusty, and the memory plays tricks, and and so you may have played, we will rock you eight million times but you've got to bang it through once or twice before you go on the road just to make sure. And there's been some changes to that, and I'm not going to tell you what they are, but... Uh, oh. uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that would be a good question. Yeah, what's what's changed? In, uh, yeah, what has changed? <laughs> what has changed in the no, intervening two that, years for the new tour? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so they will rehearse... When something new is being done or something's been dug out from the from the, the archives, uh, they will. And sometimes when we do a special, and I, I use, the, for example, do you remember the New Year's Eve gig, Big Ben? Mm. Yes, yeah. yeah, Queen, yeah. Big, whatever. That took some work because it's all based around minutes and seconds before Big Ben goes off. So um, you don't want to be in the middle of an important song and the BBC turns you off while the mm. Big Ben chimes and things like that. So yeah. we we work on stuff like that. Um, and coming up, we will do a few days together just to bang through the stuff before we go. And the real rehearsal comes when we go to the production rehearsals with the stage and the lights and mm. the video. All that stuff needs us to be accurate and on our game so that the crew and the technicians can make it all work. We don't most waste too much time uh, on uh, digging stuff up. We can we can get up to speed quite quickly. Mm. It's all about what changes are going to occur because we might turn around and say we're going to change this, we're going to change that, and and we change it instantly, play it once or twice, and move on. You know, so there's not much patience for for banging banging things through. Relentlessly. Sure, you know. sure. Yeah. No, it's 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 rehearsal with purpose. How does it feel for you up there, Spike? Do you are you just one hundred percent focused on, you know, what the songs are doing and what you've kind of got what the job you've got in front of you, or are you like, oh, I'm up here playing with some really great musicians? Yeah, I mean all of that, but there are shows where I have to be focused because I'm looking for something that's going to happen. I'm waiting for a cue 
from somebody. I'm waiting for Adam to get to something, and I, and he and I know what's going to happen next, but we don't know mm-hmm. when it is until our eyes meet and we nod, and here we go. We get, we do the thing that we we're planning wow. for. So there's a lot of that. Um, you do have to keep your mind on the job. It's very easily easy to go off the rails, but it doesn't happen very mm-hmm. often that we go off the rails, and we're fairly good at recovering. And, and I don't think most people would notice. Um, the only time we ever have a problem if there's a technical difficulty and everything blows up and stops, you know, so uh, it's only happened once or twice, but uh, somebody kicked, a, kicked the main switch and the power went off. And then <laughs> wow. a minute later, it came back on again and we just, oh, two, three, four. And we, just <laughs> we do need to have our wits about us. And yeah. I, for one, gave up drinking before the show because... <laughs> Just like uh, everyone else did, right? Uh, well, I'm not saying anything, but, um, <laughs> but, but, but for me, I have um, things to where I have to start songs uh, or do something that requires a precise decision and a precise action on my part for something, and or I have to be aware of some visual cue that is going on on the screen. And to make sure that we are locked into that. And so I won't start mm. until I see or hear something that's important. And then you can start drinking. <laughs> after, <laughs> actually, I had my first drink before the encore. because it's a, Oh, good for you. That's it's, about it's, right. It's we will rock you and we are the champions. And we all go sure. on stage at the end. And, and there's always a lineup of tequilas or something or the local. Yeah. Or whatever it is. So then I think, well... Yeah, and you I'm can cut loose these, a little bit. It's very difficult for me to cut these up, so <laughs> If I had those golden grains, have my yesterday, yesterday, I would wrap you in the heaven, but they'll let You are in a very exclusive club, really, of people that have performed on the stage, you know, with Queen, particularly with with Fred. Yeah. Um, so you you said at the beginning that you kind of you knew who they were, you respected them, but you weren't, you know, you wouldn't call yourself a sort of a big fan. But when you started performing with them on stage, you know, from your perspective, which is unique, i.e., on stage with them, did you get a a sense of just sort of how how good they were at working a crowd, at working a venue, and and sort of make and and, and putting on a show. Very much so. Um, I mean, the rehearsals. The, the, I mean, for the works, there was some new stuff to be attempted. Uh, new songs, i.e., Gaga, Break Free, hmm. Hammer, uh, maybe one or two others. Um, but everything else had been long established, so we did spend a bit of time figuring out because they'd never had anything that had been led by the synthesizer up until this point. Mm-hmm. And Radio Gaga is very much so led by the synthesizer. Mm. So that was a new thing for them. And we worked hard at that, getting that, getting everybody comfortable with that. Because up until then, it had all been guitar led. Everything had been guitar led, all, all piano led from Fred or whatever. Um, uh, but 
when I saw them going through their paces of the stuff that they do, even in rehearsal, you know, I think it was Elton John said it's like a Ferrari, you know, it's mm. a, a powerful engine just purring along, waiting to be gunned into life. And that really is what it's like. And I was not apprehensive, but I was focused and, and uh, determined to get things as good as I possibly could so that they didn't stick me on the plane home. Um, and so <laughs> yeah, by, the time, by the time we went on our stage uh, in Belgium, that first gig, I was sort of 50% confident and 50% scared. <laughs> and, um, but, but the thing is, you know, they clicked into queen mode from the offset and Fred clicks into Fred mode. Mm. And that's something wondrous to behold. And to be that close to seeing what he did, how he was, not only the fact that he was magnificently talented, he loved what he did. And it really came out that he loved being up there and he loved it. You know, the bigger the crowd, the more, the more people, the better, darling, and all that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, and, and that was um, a real thrill to witness, to, be, to feel like I'm the, here's the Ferrari and I'm, I'm in the baby buggy being towed behind. <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, you know, hang on for grim life. Um, and, and I'm sure the two guys before me, Fred Mandel and uh, Morgan Fisher, felt the same as, as well. Although there was a slight difference by the time I came on board. I think it had been two or three years since the previous two. When was uh, the 81 or 82? Was America, 80, was 82 was the yeah. space. Yeah. So it been right. a good couple so, of years. And that was the last time they were a four-piece. So in that period, these new newer songs had come along, which had given my position more responsibility, the Radio mm. Gaga and, the, mm. and whatever. And also, I don't know if those guys sang, but I did volunteer to help out with the backing vocals because Queen, of course... Their vocals are, you know, everybody knows how magnificent their vocals are. Mm. But really, in the large part until then, it was Fred and Roger who was captive behind a mic. John didn't sing uh, hardly at all. And Brian would be off down the catwalk or, you know, so <laughs> you, you had one voice and one backup voice a lot of the time. And so me coming along added another harmony, which all of a sudden made things better. And I, I started to use... Um, the vocoder machine, which is what uh, Roger had used on Radio Gaga, uh, right. you know, the radio, I started to use that to fatten the backing vocals out. So wow. when he and I sang uh, on, on a few of the songs, um, I would add the vocoder. So all of a sudden we had what sounded like three or four voices. That's amazing. And, uh, and nobody, nobody shouted at me for doing that. I just kind of did it because I thought it needed it. And I thought, I'll do this until somebody gets the ump with it um <laughs> and and they didn't so that was good and then, of course over the years we've uh, things have changed in this current lineup we've got six singers up there who could all really sing you know so yeah, um, yeah, even, yeah. even when brian is doing his thing we still got five people at microphones yeah, yeah, which yeah. is a big old deal now, i always regard the queen backing vocals as almost as important as an instrument because mm. they, they add so much to the sound yeah. so um, i remember that little video that you put out of you guys rehearsing man on fire backstage just before the outsider tour feel like a man on fire feel like a man possessed feel like a 
think I watched that for like an hour straight. Just on loop. <laughs> just, and obviously by the time I got to the gig, I was like, oh my God, it sounds so good. Yeah, I mean, uh, it does sound good. And, and uh, in recent tours, well, we have a little warm-up thing. You've probably seen it on this. There's a documentary video thing of us backstage singing around the piano. And in fact, what yeah. we've got a little medley of quite important vocal bits where everybody sings and it lasts for about five, six minutes. And we do it every night. That's our, our right. gathering free stage thing. There's a piano in there. And, uh, and once we're all assembled, uh, we run that and we sing it and then we walk out to the stage and we right. go on. That's so it's like always time to happen seven minutes before showtime kind of thing. Um, and there was something else. There was a review from a couple of years ago from uh, someone in America, which said, and the backing vocals were suspiciously accurate. <laughs> Roger was livid, absolutely <laughs> livid, because he is very anti-augmentation when it comes yeah. to playing. You know, play it and sing it. Play the song, yeah. sing the words. That's the yeah. rule. You know? mm -hmm. Um, so to have it inferred that there was some jiggery pokery technical bollocks going on um, <laughs> made me laugh. He still brings that's actually still, flattering, isn't it? To a great degree, <laughs> that, that that your yeah. live sound is so strong, they can't quite believe it. Yeah, there is that. There is that. They can't quite believe it. But I mean, when you've got it, 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 you've got five people playing. Uh, you should be able the same to tell. at the same time <laughs> and uh and six people singing that's a monstrous sound and if you've got mm. a good sound system mm. it sounds devilish you know it sounds uh and, and they do have a good sound system working for them and we have good sound people and a great crew who who help to make it sound brilliant and and look fabulous so um mm. you know we're very lucky oh. but it does for people because so many artists rely on electronic um nonsense to uh, yeah. to provide stuff no, true. Uh, and that's just not not the way yeah? but I think uh, everybody's too old-fashioned to, to worry about that we don't do that go on Suze just thinking about all the times you've um, played as a part of these huge bands what would you say is the m most like a rock star you've ever felt going on stage? <laughs> or do you feel like that at every gig? <laughs> well, I mean, I have to say, I think um, the sense of achievement that you've kind of uh, scaled some kind of ladder or something is when you walk stage, when you did walk on stage at Wembley Stadium. Mm. I mean, we did things like Nebworth, but they're fields, you know, and you can't mm -hmm. say, I'll oh, play the field, brilliant, you know. Um, <laughs> Um, but to walk on stage at Wembley was... Uh, I, I haven't played at the new Wembley Stadium and people say that the sound there is crap, so I'm not in a hurry okay. to get that. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, they they really cocked it up by... Um, right. The rumour is, and I could be wrong, so I'll put my hand up if I am, um, they said that they didn't take um, acoustics into consideration when they built it. That's the right. rumour, al the allegedly. And I was speaking to a, a guy in America recently who his job was stadium acoustics and he right. helped design a stadium in Germany 
and they built it according to the acoustic properties to get the best you could out of it. Now, mm. would it have been so hard to have yeah, done that? Yeah. Mm. National Stadium, which is famous for all shows. I mean, it just seems mm-hmm. so um, short-sighted uh, when you think of what's happened there performance-wise. And I think it was George mm. Michael who opened, did the first gig when it, the new Wembley opened. Right. And everyone said it was horrendous, the sound. Oh. Right. Yeah. Well, it, it was too quiet and it was wishy-washy and whatever. Uh, but I am only repeating uh, uh, spurious rumour. What you've been I, told. <laughs> I, I have no proof that that is true. But, uh, <laughs> do you know what one of the greatest, greatest moments for me has ever been? Um, when we were doing, uh, this is with the SAS band, Spikes All Stars, we mm-hmm. were doing a Nelson Mandela birthday party at Radio City Music Hall. Wow. Um, and with an all-star lineup, and we had Aretha Franklin, and uh, uh, oh god, you know, loads of great people. But also on the bill was my personal hero, Stevie Wonder. Ah. Wow. Now I knew that he wasn't going to come and do the gig with us because he would only ever work with his rhythm section or whatever. Okay. Um, so we we were doing the sound check, and we were Cindy Lauper and all these mm. people banging on stage. Two songs off, you know. Mm-hmm. Gotta, it's, it really, it, the sound checks on those things are conveyor belts. Yeah. Uh, you, you don't even play the whole song. You play the beginning, you cut straight to the end, off, next, you know, mm-hmm. and we've got no time for diva behaviour. Anyway, gotcha. Stevie Wonder, um, they said Stevie is going to use his band and everybody's going to leave the building. And I said, well, I used a very colourful Anglo-Saxon phrase <laughs> and said... <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm the band leader and musical director of this gig. I'm not going anywhere. Mm. And I thought, I wonder if I can get away with that. And they said, oh, okay. So me and my guys went and sat down in the third row in, in Radio City Musical and watched Stevie Wonder jam for an hour with his band. Oh. We were the audience. And I can honestly say it was the most exhilarating thing to watch mm. because because – they were just uh, messing around and he would play a bar, you know, verse and a chorus of something and then he'd stop and he'd start something else and he'd put jazz, blues, something of his, something of somebody else's. It was just a kaleidoscope of wonderful musical tidbits that all joined together for that hour. And we all looked at each other and said, that's the best concert any one of us has ever been to. Wow. And, wow. and we... And it was our position as the musicians on the on the show that allowed us to witness that nobody right. else did. And when it came to the actual gig, Stevie did his set. He played like thirty minutes or something, and um, right at the very end. And because of the uh, tech, you know, the actual physical thing of getting on and off the stage, we all just stayed in our position. So I'm sat at my keyboard. To my right, down a little bit, is Stevie at his keyboard so i'm just basically looking over his shoulder and i'm that watching and uh, he starts playing um happy birthday to you Mm. know his song nelson mandela and i'm thinking oh god i could really (laughs) i could play this and um and his bass player uh nathan watts who's been with him forever big giant guy is and Mm. bass looks like a toy in his hands Mm. and he's and i'm looking at stevie and i'm looking at nathan and nathan's looking at me and then all of a sudden he goes Go on then. And he let oh. me join. And, oh. uh, <laughs> and so 
and of course it was in D flat, which is the worst possible key. <laughs> um, and so yeah, that's probably the most rock starry moment. Wow. I mean, I've, I've come off jet planes and stuff like that, but uh, private planes and whatever. I love that. I mean, I've literally seen you on stage with Freddie shagging his own microphone stand, rubbing his back up against you, and you're like. Yeah, yeah, I was sat in the third row watching Stevie Wonder all to myself. <laughs> Most rock and roll moment I've ever had. <laughs> That's so beautiful. That's a true musician's answer, that. Yeah. Well, the thing is, I mean, all that Fred stuff, I mean, it happened so long ago. So, yeah, mm. I, I mean, it comes back to me when I see, uh, they show the video every now and then. I thought, sure, oh, yes, he really did do that, didn't he? He did yeah. Yeah. jump on the piano and play along. They showed the uh, pretty tribute the other night, and uh, you know, with all the greats, Robert Plant and and Lions mm. and all that stuff, and that that was pretty a pretty special moment. But it was yeah. so exhausting. That was the first ever gig I ever went to in my life. Oh really? Yeah. Wow! It was okay. one of the most amazing. I mean, it's still so vivid for me that day. Absolutely, it was the first time I saw you live as well. Not the last, but the first. That was a special day. That was a whole special week because um, that that seemed like an enormous mountain we had a uh there's a great shot of uh, we're up in was it pinewood or elstree or somewhere i don't know um and you've got you know david bowie out with john annie lennox uh george Mark. it all sat there like a doctor's waiting room <laughs> to do their thing and no no um histrionics no, no fever behavior right. you know no, no egos exactly it was fantastic for mm. that and uh and there's some great moments in that show. I mean, mm. forget how many great moments there are. Yeah. And it looks... Oh, it's, it's madness. I mean, you had loads of Minnelli, for goodness sake. It was absolutely <laughs> incredible. It was, yeah. uh, you know, I, you know, I still to this day, I'm like, oh, my God, I got to see Spinal Tap play live. I got to see, <laughs> you know, Extreme knocking out of the park with their crazy medley. And then once, uh, once you guys got on stage... Just seeing singer after singer fit in and trying to get my head around. I mean, you guys made it look incredibly easy. And it's only recently, because of Simon's documentary series, that I found out you weren't even sure if Axel Rose was actually going to turn up on stage wow. or not. You know? no, no, not at all. We didn't know what would happen. Um, and I was thinking, what a, who's going to sing this bit if he doesn't bother to walk on stage? Because I don't think Alton was prepared to do that. Bit. It's not. Or maybe he was, I can't remember. And maybe maybe Alton was going to uh, join in. Because there was all this controversy, some nonsense, and the papers were trying to make a deal. There was a feud or something weird going on. Um, but actually, you know, it, as ever, uh, it was all nonsense. And, uh, and Axel was magnificent. And that, that performance, of course... Uh, cemented Guns N' Roses in Europe. Yes, mm. that really opened yeah. uh, opened up their career, mm. and uh, they took off from that. And all from uh, wearing a leather kilt and spinning That'll around. That'll do. You know, I mean, with... <laughs> That'll do for us, Queen <laughs> There's a lovely moment in the tribute concert where where Brian 
introduces you to the crowd and sort of refers to you as the you know the unsung hero. I'd like to introduce you to to an unsung hero who's been helping us out for very many years, and I have no idea what we would do without him. On keyboards, Mr. Spike Edney. Sort of now, more recently, having seen you at work with you know particularly with with Adam, but also you know with 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 Roger on his solo tour recently, they they really have come to rely on you almost as a musical director haven't they to sort of kind of help pull it all together and sort of keep it moving forward in in terms of corralling the band is that something that you've grown into or it's more a case of being like a a musical stenographer i'm i'm taking notes and uh remembering to and i remind everybody they don't need uh, musical direction in the pure sense of the word because um they're queen they know what they want um um, but sometimes they need reminding of what they <laughs> I'm like keeper of the keys in a way. And um, and so I'll turn around and say, mm, well, we've done this five different ways. Um, we've done it, you know, like this and like that and like that. Um, what do you want to do this time? Are we coming up with a new way or are we going to steal the work from 1978? Or you know, uh, yeah, stuff yeah. like that. With Roger, um, it, it was a bit different. I did have to do more there because his songs from the album, The Outsider, of course, had never been played live. Mm-hmm. So there was no um, template to look at apart from the original studio recordings. And sometimes mm-hmm. the original studio recordings, you can't just take that and do that live. You need to tweak it, you mm-hmm. know. You need to, need to find out what's the the strengths of the song and what needs boosting and, and how do we make that work. So when you get a lot more on that, but... Um, but with with Queen these days, I'm the man with the stopwatch. <laughs> <laughs> Outsider tour was amazing. You, you pulled together an extraordinary band for that. I think Tyler uh, Warren and Tina Keys both stood out enormously. And in fact, Simon, you know when 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 Spike was introduced on stage at the um, at the tribute, we all knew exactly who you were, Spike. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, yeah. We were all like, "Yes, he is. He's an official member of the band, as far as we're concerned." So that's what that cheer was about. And I think that that has sustained. Actually, I've seen you guys live every chance I've had since then, and that has really sustained. And I think Neil Fairclough uh, on bass has kind of settled in very nicely with the band as well. But uh, Tyler and Tina both really popped out. I thought what they brought to the band musically was amazing. I got to see Rocket Prime Jive live, which made me very happy. Um, mm. But I yeah, also right. noticed like you were doing things like you introduced a whole new keyboard element to Radio Gaga that made it sound utterly fresh and amazing. And I'm just wondering where those little choices, where those little moments of, let's put a new sheen on this, like kind of the rock out version of uh, Somebody to Love, those kind of moments, where, how they come about. Well, I mean, basically, it's um, boredom uh, sometimes. <laughs> um, and you think, well, 
we've done this like this for so long and so is there anything is there a new way of approaching it and sometimes there is and sometimes there isn't and but the good thing about uh roger's tour specifically was because i don't think he toured for a very long time had he when not a solo it? tour no he hadn't electric done a solo fire tour well, god that donkey's years ago wouldn't it mm. so we were it felt like we were actually it was a fresh canvas in a way um right and I had conversations with him. I said, look, Rog, you know, we, we have decisions to make here. We, you've got, how many how many solo albums has he done? Any idea? Eight. Nine and then there's like two cross out, three cross albums. Yeah. And uh, uh, Plus yeah, the two like before that. that, plus Electric Fire. Electric yeah, Fire. I think we're on about eight Happiness. now, possibly nine. Yeah, yeah right. So there's, there's a lot of material there. And um, the... The fans that know those albums all have their favourites, but you can only do so many songs in a show. Um, I said, so we're going to decide. So we we had lists, and these lists ran for a few weeks of definites, probables, <laughs> maybes, <laughs> and then dustbin, you know. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, every few days I'd call him up and go through, and uh, he'd had time to think about, songs that he wanted to do and how many songs we didn't do every song from the from the album did we outside of there were a few that we didn't do once we brought it down to about 25 songs mm. then you've got to figure out what order you're going to do them in so mm. um oh, we, gathered, when we gathered for the first time in the first two days fortunately the quality of the musicianship is such that although um uh, christian mendoza and tina were new christian yes. they they took direction very well um right. so i called them as soon as um we knew that they were going to be on board and i said this is what we expect i expect you to know how these songs go i don't want you to come right. in and start scratching your head I, even if it's just the fact that you know what the what, what's a verse what's a chorus and what are those changes we'll worry about the twiddly bits later let's right. just be able to get together and bang them through <laughs> Uh, uh, warts and all as we say we know you're not worried about perfection you're just worried about um and we played every song in some kind of form within two days wow not very well particularly but at least we had a feel and then rog listened to it and we discussed and we said well this one is going to be great we can tell this one's going to be great that one mm, not so sure about doesn't seem you know something's wrong with it and and you have to just whittle stuff out. So there is a lot of thought going into it. And then um, once we knocked it down to about 20, let's work on a running order now. Let's choose how we're going to start and how we're going to finish. So that's what we did. has to be strange for me to start the way it opens it allows itself to grow and uh, and it kicks off they all know it and uh, it's a great way to go and 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 then when we know what we're going to end with um 
And uh, when we know what we're going to end the set with, I said, so now we're just going to figure out well, where we're going to have a toilet break. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. right. <laughs> and, was, and so Rocket Prime Drive was the old folks going off the station. <laughs> <laughs> well, Tyler went to town. Uh, yeah. yeah. Tyler yeah. took one for the team. Brilliant. I love that little moment he had where he, uh, I think he finished Strange Frontier and kind of went, I can't believe you guys know that. Uh, it's such an old song. Here's an even older one and you ripped into Tenement Funster. And I'm, I'd yeah. never heard that live. And I was like, oh, I just looked at Simon and went, oh my God. I, was, I was there on the last night at Shepherd's Bush Empire, which was oh, yeah, yeah. one hell of a gig. Night. Yeah, 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 that was a very, very special night. Indeed. They were all great, you know. I mean, um, I have to say, I think that um, the, the the band um, gelled so well yeah. that we didn't... Uh, we didn't suffer any bad gigs. We had so much fun doing that. I, I don't know if there's plans to do any more outsider, but I really hope they it does happen. So, oh, yeah, so do I. Up. So do I. I just, you know, I've always loved. Uh, I've sort of had this base rule of uh, getting to see you and any mix of Brian and Roger is always excellent. <laughs> just great musicianship. <laughs> background is trained as a classical singer and then um trained in musical theater um i trained under Stu morley in fact so i I was wondering what your experience was of uh, playing in the we will rock you orchestra pit um well at first um i was not very keen on doing it Mm -hmm. because um you have to be far more disciplined than I'm prepared to be uh, to be in a West End musical. And um, Jim Beach called me when I was in uh, California and said, we want you to be in the band. I said, why? This is a whole different thing. Um, the West End is a whole different animal when it comes to the musicians and what's required. Mm. And I said, my reading's not that great. And uh, he said, well, actually, we want you to... Uh, be sort of the rock element and to make sure that things don't get too uh, wishy-washy, uh, um, turn into, we don't want it. We don't want this to turn into cats, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, which is, I'm not decrying that, that that's oh, something that people appreciate. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, well, I'll do it for six weeks. Right. So I went along and of course all these songs that I knew, had been written out mm. for three keyboards. And I thought, well, barely enough work for one, let alone three. Um, but anyway, this is, uh, this is what was decided. Um, and it was all written out. And for me, I was uh, slightly perturbed that some of that stuff, it's all about the feel, you know, yeah. you play the chords, but it's the feel that really counts. And, and um, I was concerned that that were, it was being overshadowed by the pinpoint accuracy of the music notes mm-hmm. um it took a while for me to settle into it and also following a conductor um yeah. is was new mm-hmm. um but i thought to myself i need to learn learn something here this you know don't fight it just go with it um and every now and then i would say and they say you know what this is not really how it goes you know they don't do it like that and once or twice i said this is how we do it in the theatre. And I thought, mm, don't like that. Mm. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> I, 
uh, Brian and Roger would come in and hear it and they go, what's wrong with that? It doesn't go like that. And mm-hmm. thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I bet they listen to them. <laughs> um, so so that, that was quite good. And yeah. then um, uh, the six weeks was up and I said, right, I'm off, I'm done. And they said, no, we want you to stay. I said, no, I can't do this. Because up until then, we'd done every single show, which was like eight shows a week. Mm-hmm. And and how I explained it was, imagine if you sat down at nine o'clock every morning and you wrote a letter that was going to take two hours. And at 10.30, you would be at a certain full stop on a certain sentence. And at 11 o'clock, you would be uh, doing a certain character. And you did that eight times a week. Mm. That's what it felt like to Mm. me. There was only a little bit where you could have a a flourish of your own. But pretty much it was this. Mm. It has to be like that. I understand that. I'm not decrying it. But but for me personally, that was kind of against everything that I'd grown up doing. Um, And so I thought it's a different, that's why I say it's a different animal. It's a different Mm. uh, approach. And there are people who absolutely respond to that and uh, a few of the guys there got it and understood that and I was squirming inside thinking I can't bear this Mm. um but they said okay well you've reached a point now where you can put depths in you can what you can have appoint people to stand in for you all you gotta do is train them up and so I trained up about 15 guys um (laughs) half of the keyboard population of London working for the next 14 years because I could only bear to do like two or three shows a week right and uh, and then i would go to california for five months mm. and I, I and i i was like i had like a spreadsheet and I'd, and i put people's names into it and i shared it in right so fred's on monday joe's on tuesday and, <laughs> and it didn't cock up i'm glad to say uh, apart from once or twice but nobody turned up right um and I had to leave the pub and rush over there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but apart from that, it went through the end. And I and I grew to enjoy it immensely, actually. And and the camaraderie and Stu, mm-hmm. when he came on board, he was like second conductor, third conductor, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Um, and he had a great touch and a great yeah. way of dealing with everybody. Mm-hmm. And it uh, it... I have to say that after those first sort of like couple of months, it didn't feel like a chore yeah. anymore. I actually felt like I was a bunch of guys. We had a great vibe mm. together and we'd, you know, uh, we'd go and have, well, we did uh, matinees, we'd all go out and have mm. dinner or, and then there was always the intermission up in the band room and there was always, you know, well, fun being had, mm. jokes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. we even had a, I think we had even had a lottery syndicate going at one point. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so I did enjoy it. Would I do it again or do another one? Definitely yeah. not. Never in a million years. Um, that my time is over for that. It requires um, younger, uh, more attentive people to do it, not me. This is what you wanted. This is what you're gonna get. interested in what it was like coming on board with uh, Queen, with Freddie being such an unusual pianist. Was it quite a, a strange thing to have to slot into yourself or was it no different to slotting in as keyboard player on any other band? Well, a bit of both, really. Um, 
keyboard player and other bands, um, I didn't have to copy too much. Well, I would listen to the records uh, and glean what was going on mm. or the live. But with Fred, Fred had a unique style of playing, mm. his sort of uh, European classical style, mm -hmm. um, which he adapted into rock and roll. And I was quite fascinated by that. So when he showed me Seven Seas of Rye, um, and I went, hey, that's a bit hard, isn't it? <laughs> and he said, wait till you get to the second chord, it's even harder. <laughs> um, so um, I kind of made it my um, job to try to adapt me uh, to him, his style. I wasn't going to force my style on his, on his work. He wrote the bloody things, after all. I, the least I could do is um, uh, give it a good go to make it. Uh, and in fact, uh, a couple of tours ago, um, Brian paid me uh, a huge compliment. And he said that he was backstage changing during one bit at the end of his guitar solo or something. He said, "He said when you started off, whatever it was, he said, I thought it was Fred playing. I thought, oh, actually, that was a really Aww. nice thing to say. And I took that, uh, took that to, as a compliment. And mm. um, so... Yeah, I mean, uh, pay respect to the man and the music, really. You know, do, yeah. do the best you can to make it. Uh, nobody cares what what my version of that is. They want to yeah. hear it like I gotcha. hear it, you know? So one of my favourite albums of all time is an album by a band called The Cross. Oh. It's called Mad, Bad and Dangerous to Know. Oh. I think it is an absolute masterpiece. I don't think there's a single track on there I don't love. I mean, I have, I have listened to it to death. <laughs> <laughs> And it's such a it's such a departure from that from Shove It as well. Like there was a real evolution to that band. Can you talk to us a little bit about what was going on around the making of Mad, Bad, and Dangerous Snow? Because I think it's extraordinarily underrated that album. Yeah, but a shame because I thought it was a great record too, and I even like the follow up. They were up. I thought that had, uh, yeah, it had a lovely too. sound to it as well. The truth be told, that the first album Shove It was about eighty percent uh, written and recorded by Roger. I had a little bit of, of involvement with it. And it was as he got to the end of the recording process that he realized that he wanted to have a band. Right. So the idea of the cross occurred to him as he was doing the last one or two tracks. Now, we ended up playing on about three songs, I think. Cowboys um, and Indians and yeah, there were yeah, a few tracks a in bit, there. A bit of Shove It, I think. Yeah. Uh, I can remember doing all playing all those sample, you know, very much uh, sort of uh, when was that? Late eighties, was it? Eighty eight, mm. eighty nine? I think early yes. very early nineties. Yeah. Um so everybody was doing the sample thing, the James Brown and, and yes. I sampled Quinn in there, found out it was illegal. God. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> I was just having fun. Um and so yeah, so Rog said, now we, uh, I want to tour this as a band, and I'm going to call it a band. And so 
that was done. And I think, uh, but the guys did get to play on a couple of things. Um, so of course we took it on the road, had a lot of fun with it. Everybody slated it, you know, all the critics slated it, hated the very idea that Roger should have success with another musical thing. And uh, we were deeply uh, unfashionable. Um, and then um, we started to combine songs. So, you know, all of a sudden uh, Pete's got Liar. Mm, beautiful song. My love said she'd be the one. Now I know, baby, you're a liar. Oh. Now you're a liar. A liar. Yeah. But I'm still burning with desire. With the look of a pamper. What did I do? I did something to um, was was it? Were you better things? Was that you or was that? No, that was Clayton. That was Clayton Clayton wrote better things. I wrote, um, is it uh, Dirty Minds? Is that on there? Dirty Minds? No, Passion for Uh, Trash is on there. No, Uh, that's on Blue Uh, Rock, I think, Dirty Mind. Closer to you. you. <laughs> yeah. Just to I get had... closer to you. Yes. And uh, and there was a, a and of course um, the, power, the opening track. Power to Love. Yeah, Power to Love. That was that was Pete. Right. Um and Oh uh, Top of the World Mar as well. Top of the World Mar. Yeah, oh, direct from from James Cagney, you know. Mm. Um and and some of that stuff that stuff was written at mountain in the studio you know so we would and and everybody uh, did was passion for trash on that passion was for trash tra- was on passion. that yeah 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 that was josh Absolutely. his demo that was really good he sang that really well i was trying to push him to to be the vocalist on the track and really? we decided yeah uh, he wrote it and it really had something i, I really like that so yes there were some great moments and it, it was an album a real kind of uh, a good sort of collective vibe making that record, and I thought yeah. this is this is really something going on here. And it just when the Berlin Wall came down, so there was a real sort of feeling of something happening and something. And of I course, found my copy in Germany actually. Yeah, <laughs> I was out in Germany and found it there. I didn't know it existed. I was like, oh my god! The usual thing happened. We released it and they got a big thumbs down from the from the reviewers, the press. But the, but we we did a, a tour, a great tour, and that was ended up being the final tour i think wasn't it that tour i think so yeah yeah i don't know if you ever toured the blue rock tracks we didn't tour no. the blue rock did we no, no. i don't no. think so amazing i think on that album more than uh you know that that's the most distinctive th- you know like a member of queen has gone and formed a band and that is a proper band and they are all gelling as writers and performers uh, yeah. and creating re- I mean every single track on that album is distinctive um, so you're the guy that likes it I'm- yeah, <laughs> yeah I've, I'm, I'm the guy that's bought all of the copies of it no yeah. no, no I've had some interactions with our listeners it is loved it is loved out there I can tell you that much Power to Love was a great track yeah, and, uh... oh and just the album cover's gorgeous like the whole thing is fantastic yeah. I just got a. I just picked it up on vinyl, and uh, I, it sounds gorgeous all over. Old men's on there. Final destination. Final destination, like the. Oh, it's such a beautiful version of that track as well. 
I do like the remix that he did on a later album, but um, like I say, I'd listen to every single one of those tracks as much as I have done any 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 Queen album for sure. Um, but um, Heaven for Everyone was on that Shove was it, on Shove it. Shove it, yeah. My preferred version of that track as well, actually. Spike, um, obviously. There are a lot of Queen fans out there who are chomping at the bit to get to see yes. Queen and Adam live again. Um, right. What what, uh, what treats have you got in store for them? What can they expect from the tour? Uh, playing the right chords and singing words. No, um, you've got to do better than that, uh, Spike. <laughs> Is well, Dragon Attack back on the well, <laughs> playlist, hey, please? Uh, I can't actually answer that question. because No, I know you're not allowed yeah, to. This, this would Just have been mine. Those decisions haven't been made yet, but but oh, right. if you think about this, this tour should have happened in March 2020. Yeah, exactly. So it would have been an extension of what happened in the Far East just before that, with a couple of things changed because there are songs right. that we play in the Far East that uh, don't get played in Europe, um, only because they're "I Was Born to Love You" or something or uh, But who knows? Maybe they will be included. But uh, what I'm say is um look at any footage of uh, australia new zealand or japan from february 2020 and okay. that will be the basis of the show sure um there, there could be some uh, surprises but i won't know that until a month's time when we uh, somebody will either tell me they want to do something different or when we walk into the rehearsal and, and somebody goes hey what about mm, if we do this have you got a deep cut track that you personally wouldn't mind having a uh, seeing its way onto the play- playlist. No, I think um, because I'm not a Queen fan, um, I don't know. Or, I mean, a lot of those songs I've never heard before. Like, um, I do, uh, I quite like It's Late, so I like it when we do that. Yeah, mm. yeah. And um, that, that was a... Crazy, stuff like that, when that comes in, does it... Don't Call Crazy, well, I'm not really in that because there's long. no room for keyboards. I can go for an old man uh, toilet break when that's on. All right, so write this down. Suze wants My Melancholy Blues, okay? (laughs) I want Dragon Attack. Those are the only Uh, two things that you need to write down, Spike. But but we've done Dragon Attack on previous tours. Yes, I know. And and imagine how well that went. Do you remember how well that went? (laughs) It went better than all of their other songs put together, if you think about it. So Yes, I did. I saw it at the Apollo and I burst into tears. I sat next to... Jackie from the Queen Club at that point, and yeah, I, I lost it completely. To be honest, <laughs> was it in, was it in the show that we did in the Far East? Dragon Attack. I don't, I can't remember. I don't know. I don't know. Oh, well, if, so. if it was in the show that we did in the Far East, it might might be in. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? We want that to happen. That, that's Great. that's the uh, the joy. You see, there's always a surprise, and uh, <laughs> it could be that we get into there and we start re- rehearsing the songs and somebody says oh no not that one we don't want to do that and then something different will happen <laughs> so uh, so that's all i can give you really because that's all there is my very Brilliant. last question for you spike is uh what's your hot tip for surviving a, a, a scrabble match with roger taylor freddie mercury john deacon and brian may no you 
That's a very good answer. That is a very, very good answer. That's a good answer for life in general, I think. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Thanks so much, Spike. You've been amazing. Thank you for spending this time with us. Uh, All our listeners are going to be so happy. Lovely to meet you. Really lovely to meet you. Cheers, mate. Thanks a lot. All right, all the best. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This has been The Queen Pod, a Seven Seas Films production. Edited and produced by me, Sam Easton. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and stay in touch by emailing queenpod at thequeenpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.